Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Job. We'll be in chapter 2. Job chapter 2. I want to remind you there's notes in the back. If you don't have those, it may be challenging to follow along today. Maybe it won't, but they're designed to be a help. So Job chapter 2, we're going to read down to verse 10. Job chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him. To destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that, a ha- all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is, the, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us not just examples to see, but Lord, you have laid forward your Son in Jesus Christ that we don't have to read this with dread or with horror or with terror, but there is an underlying, undergirded hope that resides in this passage, though it is bleak. Help us, God, to see it. So that, Lord, it's not if suffering, Lord, you know this, it's not if suffering will come, it's when suffering will come. That, Lord, we will respond like Job and like your son, like the Lord Jesus, with faith. Help us, we pray now. Fulfill, may your word do what you say it will do. Because it does not return void. Help us now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for today's talk is, When All Hell Breaks Loose. This will be the second part of the same message, when all hell breaks loose. And I would subtitle it, Trusting God's Plans and Purposes. So last week we looked at the, the idea of trusting Christ 
which allows us to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Riffing off of the Spurgeon quote. Our suffering, what we saw last week, is meant to point us back to Christ, who has ultimately suffered under the wrath of God. But this week I want us to see this. That even when all hell breaks loose, even when all hell breaks loose, we can trust God's plans and purposes in all things. That we can trust God's plans and purposes in all things. This is a very timely message in this, and again, it could not have been planned in this way. But at the eve of watching Hurricane Ian go through and destroy much of Florida, it leaves us wondering, asking, why? Why? Depending on who you talk to, they'll say, well, this is just punishment. This is divine punishment. Others will just sit and wonder, why? Why are all these things happening? And I will, I will not say that I, we're going to answer that question of why today, but rather we're going to ask the question, how? How are we then to live? Not, not why. Not why has this happened? Because we don't have those kind of answers. But how are we then to live? Even when all hell breaks loose, we can trust God's plans and purposes in all things. So I want you to see, if you're taking notes, uh, again, the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, typically the way that it works is it works almost like a play. And it moves from scene to scene. And now we've moved back to a different scene. If you remember the last scene, it was a scene on earth. Now we're going to scene three, I'm calling it. And again, in the book of Job, it's scene three, God grants Satan to harm Job. So last week we saw the Lord took all of his possessions through Satan in that way, through the means. And this week we're going to go back into the throne room of heaven. We're seeing heaven peeled back for a second. We're going to look in and see. Uh, Look down at verse 1 and 2. It says, And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now these verses are the exact same of what we saw last week. They're they're the same same kind of pattern. So this is something that we, we should have in our mind. That occurrence that happened in chapter 1 is not something that's rare. This is something that's regular. That, that God is the sovereign one ruling over everything, but doing so governmentally. That's what we saw last week. Sovereignly ruling even over his enemies, yet governmentally permitting even evil to happen. Though God is never charged with evil, he is always over all things. Okay? That's what we saw last week. But I looked down at verses 2 and 3. And we're going to look at Satan's desire. Satan's desire. Sorry, Brandon. Satan's desire, which is Job's destruction. Satan's desire, which is Job's destruction. Look down with me. We see it from what the Lord says of it. He says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now that's the exact same thing. Again, the Lord is reminding us, he's he's imprinting this. Anytime in Hebrew poetry or literature, when we see like repetition, we should be hearing a drumbeat of like, okay, this is really important. We've heard this once before, but we'll hear it once again. And the Lord is again confirming, my servant Job is blameless and upright. He still fears God. He's turned away from evil. But listen to what he says. It's a little different. It's still in verse 3. He says, And he still holds fast his integrity, 
although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, notice that last little part. You incited me against him to destroy him. Okay, now if you remember, Satan presented it as though he just needs some testing. He just wants some testing. That's, a, that's all we want to do. We just want to test Job to really see if his motives are pure. And what I want us to see is that Satan's desire is never, is never to test us. It's to destroy us. Let that sink in for a second. Listen to what he says again in verse 3. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And the Lord even says, well, you've done that. You've, you've incited me against him. And he's like, he still, is in, he still holds his integrity. He hasn't sold out in any way. So we see Satan is not interested in testing him. He's interested in destroying him. Here's what this means for us. It means, it means something for us, and I hope you see it. This means, and it's something we better recognize, is that evil never just wants to harm us. Okay? And I think we think that sometimes. Again, maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe you're very, very discerning and you understand that. But we do it in very, very subtle ways. Evil never wants to harm you. It wants to destroy you. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, we see Jesus say something very similar about even the apostles. This is Simon Peter he's talking about. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Again, if we could remember what God just told Job, he's not looking to just test him. He's looking to destroy him. But listen to what Jesus says. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So we see the same dynamic even still happening. Like Satan demands to have him, and yet what, what does he say? But I prayed for you. And so then he will be able to go. But the question is, I want to ask, I want us to consider, does Satan still attack Christians today? Does Satan still attack Christians today? Now we just saw First John, in First John, the answer is yes. And I think it would be pretty clear if you're a Christian to be like, yes, he attacks us. So the first thing is, don't be surprised. Destruction as an end. Destruction as an end. I heard one pastor say it well. He said, expect it, detect it, and reject it. I don't have that kind of pastoral whatever to, for you to remember it, but I'll give you his. So don't be surprised. Expect it, detect it, and reject it. So don't be surprised. And you might think, well, Daniel, I'm not surprised by this. I wouldn't be surprised by I know Satan wants this of me. He wants to destroy me. But I think, I think oftentimes we treat evil or evil ideologies, if we will. There was, a, there was an example I heard once. There was a young girl, um, actually a model, and she was, they, were having her take, they were having her pose on a lion. And you might be like, what the, why would he, they have her pose on a lion? But it's, it's what they do in all the model magazines or whatever, I guess. And she was posing in front of this lion. She'd like lay on the lion. And the lion was tame, quote unquote. I don't know if you can ever tame an apex predator. But one day the lion attacked her. And the, everyone around was like, oh my goodness, why, why has this happened? Little Leo, Leo was so sweet. Why would this happen? And we all look at her and are like, you were laying on a lion. <laughs> and we look at this and we think... That's ridiculous. You were laying on an apex predator 
and you wondered why it attacked you. And I think the same thing can be true of us, that we do with not just sin, but actually evil, is we think we'll be like, well, it's okay. I was there laying with it yesterday, so it's not a big deal. It really won't destroy me. But I want you to see from this text even that, ju- that, that Satan's desire for us is destruction. And the unfortunate thing is that this comes through means of different ideologies, different beliefs. So we're not, we shouldn't be naive when we think about Satan no longer attacking believers or attacking them in different ways. What I want you to think, though, is how do we now think of this? And I want you to think of it like this. Defeated but prowling. Defeated but prowling. Now, there's a big difference in the story we're seeing with Job and our story. Now, I do want to acknowledge the difference. He's defeated but prowling. I'm calling it shelter in the sun. When we think of the cross of Jesus Christ, we also need to not just think of it just as removing sin, which it has. We need to also think of the cosmic element of this, okay? The cosmic element of the cross. And we saw it in 1 John. Let me just give it to you. 1 John 3, 8. He says, the reason the Son of God, that is Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, let me give you another one. We read it last week, but I want to read it again. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We need to see that Satan is defeated in that way, but prowling. So when we hear the writers of the New Testament say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. What we need to see is that Satan, who once was standing before the Father in that way, like we're seeing in Job, saying, that one's accused. Look at how that one has, has failed. What we're seeing in Jesus Christ now is that there is therefore now no condemnation. None. None remains. Let me give you another picture of it even. Revelation 12. And this is is literally even, and Jesus even cites this in in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, when he says he saw Satan fall like heaven, from heaven like lightning. In, In Revelation 12 he says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So there it is. There's the picture. We see that Satan is thrown down, no longer able to accuse. But now roams the earth. And listen to what it says later in Revelation. Um, Yeah, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea. For the devil has come to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Okay, so that's, that's the reality that we live in. We have a defeated foe, yet he's prowling. Okay, so I want you to, that's just the differences between Job and where we're at now. Now I want you to see, look at what he goes on to say, though, in verses 4 and 5. 
Listen to what his response is. We'll just, again, hear what the Lord says to him. He says, have you considered, verse 3, my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then listen to what Satan says. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Again, we see Satan's accusations. And the first one is Satan accuses Job. We saw this last week, but this is a different... He's accusing him in a different way than he did last week. Your skin in place of mine. That's what he's saying. Your skin in place of mine. And Satan's response of skin for skin is basically an expression that says, he doesn't still love you. You didn't even harm him. Basically, it's like this. The skin of others, this is one quote from one author, the skin of others, the outer skin of my possessions and family, will be sacrificed if I can keep my own skin, my own life, and my own health. That's essentially what Satan's saying. And he's again saying that Job is only worshiping God because he has good health. So that's Satan accusing Job, but we also see Satan accusing God of something. And it's simply this. You're still not worthy of worship. Again, he's saying something of God, and it's basically, Job doesn't really love you. He only worships you because you've spared his life. Or if you harm Job, he would no longer worship you. But listen to what he, the Lord goes on to say. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Okay, so we see, again, the Lord hand or grant to Satan that he can harm Job. So it's divine permission. Divine permission passing through his hand. God acknowledges that Satan is the cause for Job's destruction. Though the Lord gave him permission, the Lord is never charged with evil or destruction. The permission here is given from God to Satan. I want you to think for a second. Before this moment, in verse 6, Satan had no ability. He had no ability to touch Job. Zero. He, he literally couldn't touch him. This is why he goes to the Lord and says, if you touch him, like then, then he would curse you. He can touch everything that Job has, but he couldn't touch his body. He could touch everything that Job loved, but he couldn't touch him. Okay? So this is really important to see that divine, divine permission is, very, is critically important. But it's divine permission with constraints. It's divine permission with constraints. Only this far. Not only will he give permission, but there are limits to this permission, and Satan is bound by those limits. He can harm him to a point, but no further. And this is important. This is really important we acknowledge divine permission with constraints. Because sometimes what happens, especially when there's a disaster or something that comes through, we ask, where's God in all this? Where is he? And a possible lie we could believe is this. Well, well God, God didn't have anything to do with this situation. He, he, was completely, he was completely absent from this situation. God was completely uninvolved from this terrible scenario. 
And the reason this lie is so destructive is it usurps how the world actually is. We think, we, we know that God is good and kind, which is right. But, and we would think then, well, he would never allow any evil to exist. Any ins, no, no evil, no disaster, nothing like that. When we do this, when we make that lie and we say, well, God was completely uninvolved. He had nothing to do with this at all. What we end up doing is we say, well, Satan had all the responsibility. Satan, he was acting over here, and God was just asleep. He didn't really pay much mind to him. We didn't really know what he was going on there. And this is very subtle because it begins to erode our trust that God has somehow walked out and that Satan has somehow attacked on his own. The truth we need to see here, though, is that God's plans and purposes are always accomplished. That even when hell breaks loose, literally, we can trust God's plans and purposes in all things. This, this means, this is, here's what the application for us. This means that whatever comes our way, we can trust God's sovereign plan. This means that anything that has ever come your way, anything that has ever come my way, there is a sovereign, ordained plan behind it. Now what bothers us is we don't know the answer to that. This is what, this is what just like rakes at our, at our conscience. It rakes at us. We don't know the answer. And we're never given the answer. But we can trust, even in the unknown, and even in the awful situations, we can trust our God's character. We can trust that he it rules the entire universe, that his perfect plans and purposes are always accomplished. Let me give you another example. You think about the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph was one. He was the youngest brother of 12. And he was, his brothers, his brothers, the ones he should have, should have loved him and cared for him, sold him off into slavery. And his whole life happened in prison, it moved from prison to being unjustly charged with a crime. His whole life was upended, and it would be very easy for Joseph to be like, you know, Satan got a hold of me, and that's why I'm here. That's what he, it'd be very easy for him to sit in Egypt and be like, I'm just going to sit here and wait for the Lord's deliverance. He lived his whole life in Egypt, in slavery. But listen to how he responds at the end of Genesis. Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, that's referring to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. No, wait a second, hold on. His whole life, his whole life of being sold into slavery, his whole life of all the evil that has come upon him, he says, you all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph literally couldn't have in his brain processed all that God had purposed. If he would have been told in that moment, hey, this is what I have going here, Joseph would have been like, I don't even have a box for that. I would have been blown away by that. But what he did his whole life was confidently trust that there was a sovereign God in control of it all. Even when he didn't know what was happening in life, he knew the one who was in control. Okay, so that's that we're, we're in the throne room of heaven. Now we move, verse, verse 7. So this is the fourth scene. So Satan proceeds to harm Job now. He's given the divine permission with constraints, and this is what he goes on to do. So Job, he sits in dust and ashes, verse 7. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. From the little places in between the toes to the very tippy top of his scalp. This is just meant to show us it's everywhere. All over him. Listen to what he's doing then. Verse 8. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Here's a man who had everything. Here was a man just one chapter ago. He had it all. He had comfort. He had convenience. And here he is now sitting in an ash heap, scraping himself with broken pottery. Where there was once a great man from the land, there now sits a man who's sitting on his throne of ashes, scraping himself because of sickness. Job, who once had a great throne of comfort and joy and blessing, now sits weeping and mourning as he sits on his throne of ashes. This throne of ashes is actually where now the friends will come to him and now prosecute him. They will come, and rather than people coming and comforting him, what we're about to see is we're about to see them come and say, you're wrong, just repent and God will forgive you. And God will make all this right. But we've seen, he's sitting in these ash, this ash heap, and he's done nothing wrong. It is really easy for us. I've heard it, even in the news, if you've been watching the news at all. You now hear liberals saying, well, this thing that happened to Florida, it's because it's because God's punishment for you. Or conservatives, we look out at California, we see fires burning, and we think, well, this is your judgment, here it is. And the answer is, we don't know why or what God is doing. And that bothers us. We always want to have, make sense of it. And here's Job sitting in dust and ashes. has nothing. But notice what it does to them. Notice what it does to, the Job, to Job's household. Those who are still remaining. And I want you to see, same situation, two responses. Same situation, two responses. Mr. and Mrs. Job. Same situation, two responses. Both Job and his wife have experienced the exact same things. Their same children have died. Their same possessions were taken. Worse yet, even now, Job is sitting in sickness. But notice their different responses. So Mrs. Mrs. Job, the response of unbelief. This is Job's wife. Mrs. Job, the response of unbelief. Listen to what his wife responds with then. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now his wife, the person who would be closest to him, the person, the person who, would, who would have been a, should have been a great source of comfort and joy, is now telling him, just curse God and die. Now if you're married, you know that your spouse, when you're opposed to you, is a very very not good feeling. And we're not talking about a disagreement over where to eat. We're talking about a disagreement that you should just abandon the faith. I've already done it. You just go and do it now. It's very disorienting to have the person who's been closest to you telling you, just abandon God and die. 
And I want you to see actually what Mrs. Job is acting as here, which is Satan's mouthpiece. Satan's mouthpiece. The devil's assistant. Little did Mrs. Job know she is functioning in this moment as Satan's mouthpiece. As John Calvin would say, Satan's tool. She is asking Job to do what Satan has been trying to get him to do. And she's imploring Job to curse God and die, basically inviting God's judgment upon him. Here's what I want us to see. Charles Spurgeon, he once said that, here's this quote, the same sun, here it is, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens others in their sin. This means that the same experience, it would be really easy to be like, well, you know, they had the same upbringing. And so, like, they had the same experience. So we think the natural secular age would want to say, well, they should have the same response, right? No, no, no. They have one. His response is a response of faith from a heart that's soft and tender towards God. Her response is a response of hatred and unbelief. Mrs. Job experienced a terrible reality, but what came out of her heart was unbelief and hatred. Now, I want you to notice the difference. It's very striking as you see it. So, Mr. Job's response, the response of faith. Mr. Job, the response of faith. Look at what he says to her in verse 10. You think in that moment, how I would want to respond would not be this. Let me say that. You'd want to respond with, well, let me tell you, Miss Job, like, I'm not going to curse God and die. I'm, I'm the self-righteous one. You, like, I'm not going to do this. I would respond a bunch of different ways. But listen to how he responds. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women should, would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, the difference is striking here. Mrs. Job's response is one of hatred And Job's response is one of faith. But listen to how he says it to her. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women. Psalm Psalm 14.1, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So that's what the fool says in his heart. And Job doesn't say, well, Miss Job, you're a fool. That's your problem. You're a fool. He says, no, you speak as one of the foolish women. He doesn't even call her a fool. He's saying, he's suggesting, you're acting like a fool right now. You know what's true, and you're not acting in step with it. She's spoken rashly and quickly, as if she was one of these foolish people. And listen to what Job says in verse 10. This should not, we should not overlook what he says in verse 10. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? We need to see that there are right-handed and left-handed providences from God. And what I mean by that are the right-handed responses are the good things that come from God. They're blessings that God gives us. The good benefits because it produces, it promotes, and it protects life. The things, the right-handed responses. But we need to see that also from the same sovereign God, there comes left-handed responses. 
disaster and harm and pain which destroy life, calamity. And the first round has taken away all the gifts from God, and the second round of left-handed responses are taking now away his health. And Job's answer to his wife is basically, we have received God's blessing. Won't we also receive his disaster? Both the good and disaster are brought into our lives from our sovereign God. Notice what Job's not trying to do here, though. And it's our tendency, when we, when we, we were Christians and we've been Christians a long time, to want to find answers for why this is all happening. It'd be really easy to sit there as Job and be like, Lord, why is this all happening? And we're going to hear him do something called lamenting in the next chapter. But right now, he doesn't say any of that. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? One of the pitfalls that we can find ourselves in is trying to draw moral conclusions based upon physical things around us immediately, like a one-to-one connection. Job's response is basically, good and bad are occasions for blessing. We need to write this one down, put this one deep within our soul. Good and bad are occasions for blessing. Both good and disaster are occasions for worship. So rather than asking the question, why is this happening? We need to start asking, how can I respond? How how am I meant to respond to what is happening? And I'll be honest with you, the response for Job in this moment, the most godly response we see is sitting there scraping himself in tears and ashes. It's not a happy, slappy-go-lucky Christianity. It's 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 a following God that's hard. And he's asking, how are we now to respond? So I want you to see, as we close up here, Job is exemplary, meaning that he is setting us an example, holding fast to your integrity. Exemplary. He's an example to us. And I want you to see this too. It's easier to lower, this is from Christopher Ashe, he says, it's easier, this is the easier response, to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. It's very, very, very easy to sit and be like, well, I don't know why all this is happening, but whatever, let me, like Mrs. Job, curse God and die. Or another easy route is to just be like, why is this happening to me? And just bemoaning it. But listen to what, look at what he does. Trust, he trusts that it is by design. Trust that it's by design. Job is trusting that what is happening to him is not some random act. We, we hear this all the time in our secular society. There was a random act of violence. And, and what they mean by that, typically what they mean by that, is it wasn't premeditated. But if, if we get our cues from an ungodly, secular world, what we will be like is, this is all just, we're all just molecules bouncing around here. But he's trusting it's by design. I think what John Piper says here is very telling, and he's talking specifically about cancer. This is what he says. He says, what God permits, he permits for a reason. That reason is his design. 
If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it or not. If he does not, he has a purpose. Since he is infinitely wise, it is right to call this purpose a design. Satan is real and causes many pleasures and pains. And he is not ultimate. So he's trusting first. Here's the example from Job. He's trusting this is by design. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The second thing he's doing is he's trusting that it is a gift from God. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Now, I want to be very clear here. If someone is suffering, a very um, unwise thing is to go tell them, brother, sister, this is a gift. You need to receive this well. No, 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 no. That's not, I'm not urging us to go into hospitals and start telling people about all the gifts they're receiving, the left-handed providences they're receiving. I'm not telling us to do that. But we ourselves, when, when these hardships come, to realize and know as Christians, this is a gift from God. Now, the prosperity gospel would want to say, God wants to bless you. He wants to, he wants to financially benefit you. But what happens when that, all that's ripped away? What happens when you're sitting on the ash heap? Whereas the true gospel wants us to recognize that both good and evil are instruments of, of God's purposes. Both positive and negative things all serve to advance his purposes. And we know his purposes. His purposes are very clear. They're all throughout the scriptures. They're the promises that we stand upon. That he's conforming us to his image. That he's doing these things. That he is bringing the world to himself. So we know his purposes. But listen to how the author responds. He says of Job, this is his last comment about Job in this little section. He says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, we should walk away from this and not think, well, Job, he's got a secret sin. That's what he has. He has a secret sin real deep down. No, no, no. The author's saying, in all this, Job did not sin. I want us to see one final thing, though. It's prophetic. So if Job is just an example, again, he will crush us. We will look at Job and we will think, man, I suck. Man, I'm really awful. I've had hardly any, I've had hardly any, any suffering at all, but I respond a lot like Mrs. Job. Maybe that's where you're sitting today. The other good news of Job is it's also prophetic. Is the one who held fast. In this passage, we see a great man find himself sitting on a throne of ashes. And he's meant to point us to the great man who is to come, which is Jesus, who found himself on a cross, on a throne, on a throne of a cross. Not a throne of ashes, but a throne of a cross. And doing so for his people. Colossians two fourteen through 15. Let me just give you one last passage. By canceling, this is what he was doing on the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. I want you to think about that last verse though. He disarmed them, that is the rulers and authorities, and putting them to open shame 
By what? By a cross. By, a, by where Job was sitting in an ash heap outside of the town in a place called Gehenna, we, ha- we see the Lord Jesus then suffer 2,000 years later on a cross outside of the city so that when even when hell breaks loose, we can trust that God's plans and purposes are in all things. If the cross of Jesus Christ finds itself within God's plans and purposes, we should not be rattled when our life feels like it's coming apart. Because we know that there's been one who disarmed the rulers and authorities in open shame by triumphing in them over the cross. So we're going to take communion now. And I want us to consider, as we take communion, uh, the Lord Jesus. I want us to consider him and to remember the gospel to remember when he tells us to take the bread and take the cup, he's reminding us that we take it by faith. This is not, and again, we we can look at the imperative of what we need to do or we can look at the, the fact of what it says of us. And this bread and this cup, the fact of it says that we are saved by grace through faith. So receive, as you take of the bread, as you take of the cup, you're receiving a fresh and a new Christ. So, as Isaiah reminded me last week, don't, don't just take the bread. Take Christ. Grab a hold of Christ in that way. So if the deacons, if you guys would come forward, let's, let's take communion together.